right. If you would find in your Bibles Hebrews chapter 12. First three verses. You know, sometimes as you read and you study and you pray and you meditate, the Lord just kind of keeps you sitting in a few scriptures. And I've been sitting in these for a while and didn't know exactly what's going on, but maybe it's, I'm assuming it's to share with you what's going on here. So uh, we find these words in the first three verses. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Well, amen. Father, guide us as we think, as we look in your word, as we receive from your spirit the guidance that we need. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> I apologize in advance for the <clears throat> clearing of my throat. The head cold allergies just kind of wants to hang on a little bit, so just, just ignore all that stuff. All right. Um, I don't know if you are familiar with what's going on in Hebrews. Uh, it's, it's probably one of the, the books in our Bible that is looked at and studied less than others. Uh, it's not the prophetic eschatology that a lot of people like to get into, and it's, it's, not, uh, um, it's not some of the more tantalizing, but it, it's, it's, it's a rich, full sermon is what it is. Uh, the author, uh, obviously, is away from his people, and so he's writing back this sermon to his flock. And what's going on uh, is, is that there's a time of transition. I don't, I, I'm, I'm assuming, or, I'm, let me, or let me not assume anything, but <laughs> when the letter was written about this time, the, the church... Uh, had, that had begun as a sect in Judaism had grown to the point where now we're, it's mostly composed of Gentile believers. It's not to say that there wasn't a large contingent of Jewish believers, which there were, and so Hebrews is a sermon that the pastor writes back to his church and he's writing to a particular group within that church, and it's the group of Jewish believers in that mostly Gentile congregation and scenario. This takes place about the end of the first century, transitioning into the beginning part of the second century. Uh, a lot of things were going on. The, the political situation probably was the most... Um, precarious for believers. You had two emperors notorious for their persecution of believers, Nero and Domitian, uh, who were in leadership during this time of, of the writing of this letter, a little before, a little after, during. So we, we got a, a lot of overlap. You know, if you read history, you, you see a lot of the uh, about this time and about that time. So it, it's difficult to be like we like to be today, you know, this date, this time, this second. But in historical stuff, you have a lot of uh, latitude in when those dates may be. But there were several things taking place. But the primary thing was going on was that the, the, the Jewish believers were, they, they were on a razor's edge trying to decide what to do. 
they had come out of a very legalistic, law-oriented, priestly, sacrificial system and were moving into the life, the journey of faith. And it was compounded, the difficulties were compounded by several things going on. The political scene was one of those things because for some reason, um, if we go back in time to um, just after the death of Herod the Great, the, the, the Jewish leaders uh, had come to some kind of an understanding with the Roman government. The Roman government said, if you persist in sedition, we're going to squash it. And this is my paraphrase, okay? And, but if you will leave us alone, you can have your religion and practice your little sacrifices and do your law thing, but don't cross the line. And so the Jews in this time situation had grown up in this era of tolerance from the government. The government really wasn't concerned about the Jewish religion and what's going on. What they really were concerned about and the ones they focused on were the Christians, primarily because they refused to say Caesar is Lord. They wouldn't do it. Jesus is Lord. And so because of that difference, there began to be a real sharp distinction in the church as the Jewish believers really wanted to kind of slide back into that secure comfort zone when they, where they knew, okay, I'm, I'm going to be okay here. And when you look at it, you had things such as the economics. If they were businessmen, as part of the Jewish culture, Rome did not bother them so much. They could buy and sell and trade. But as the believers in Jesus, as part of the Christian sect, their income was sometimes taken away from them. They were refused whatever um, uh, legal business licenses they may have had at that point. Others may have been afraid to go to the business because they were of the, 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 the ones selected for persecution. And if you were seen participating and buying, well, then you're going to be affected as well. And so their income stream was affected. And you, you know how important that is when someone starts messing with your income stream. I uh, got their attention. Uh, the political stuff that they they really had no spokesman for them in the political scenario. They didn't have senators and congressmen like the Jewish folks would have representatives that could go to the government, and the government would listen to them because they were tolerated. But the Christians, they were fair game for any kind of persecution going on. The uh, the social antagonism was there. Uh, it's, it's like they would hang up the quarantine flag, stay away from these folks. If you mess with them, if you if visit them, you hang out with them, it's going to affect you and your family and your business and your ability to buy and sell and trade. Um, so really it, what we're looking at as, as Hebrews is helping the Jewish believers understand you really have two choices here. They're really just two choices you can, can fall back into the assumed security and safety of the Jewish position in the eyes of the government, and you won't have to, to deal with what's going on. So the traditions, the law, uh, 
and you know, if you're familiar with Hebrews, the first probably two-thirds of the, of the book of Hebrews deals with how much superior Jesus is to the law and to Moses and to the angels. And he talks about his uniqueness as our one and only Savior who died for all and trust him not in the system. When we, we really like our systems. We, we want to, whether it's um, legalism or Calvinism or whatever other ism you want to plug in there, we, we want to often deal with a system rather than a savior. I guess if I could boil it down to this, this, this chapter, or these first few verses, it's a, it's a contrast between Satan and our savior. Satan, according to the, the writer of Hebrews here, talks about um, how Satan will entangle us in a lot of things in a lot of ways to move us away from any sort of a focus on Jesus. The contrast that with the encouragement of, of Jesus, the encouraging words that the pastor gives to his people, those who are on the knife's edge trying to decide what's going on, encouraging them to trust Jesus. So that's my sermon in a nutshell. Now you got to sit through the rest of it, okay? So the, the, the choice one is to stay with Judaism, tradition, security, so, supposed, or you, you move on to an, a, 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 an uncharted uh, future. Uh, anything, if you've ever gone to a new place, since Dan's not here, I'll, I'll pick on him just a little bit, but as a little guy, we went to a Subway restaurant at some point. I don't remember how old he was. He was, remember, 10, 11, 12? Anyway, he was uncertain as to how to place an order, and when he, when he got up there, he just kind of went deer in headlights, just, ah. So from that day on, he just really was uncomfortable going into Subway restaurants till just recently, and he's been forced to go <laughs> to some place on occasion and do that kind of thing. So there is this uncertainty about un uncharted territory. The writer gives us a, a very interesting um, illustration or analogy. He says this, this life of faith that I'm trying to point you to is very much like a race. And I'm thinking it's more like a relay race. I don't know if you've ever watched the Olympics or I don't know if they do relay races here in, in track and field or not, but uh, you know, you've got three or four different runners. And at some point, the runners are running together and there's got to be a trust when that runner that's back here is meeting the runner up here. And this guy's trying to match his pace and his hand is out here. And he's not looking back here to try and see if that guy's coming. He's assuming he is. But his eye, he's, he's keeping his eyes this way, and he's reaching back. And he was, when the runner behind him slaps the baton in his hand, and he clamps on it, and he takes it, and then he goes on. And so what we have is the analogy of a race. You've got this cloud of witnesses. Chapter 11 is, is full of the folks who have gone on before, running the race. And they have survived it, and they have accomplished, and they have reached the goal. And the word is, well, you can too. Keep running. And he gives uh, some, some interesting, encouraging words in the process uh, of, de of describing this race. And the realities of the race is that we, of the 
I don't know if, if all of us have fit here, the, this generation to pass on to the next generation, the baton. Okay, here we go. What kind of job are we doing with that as we take the faith and try to pass that on to the next generation? That's, that's part of who we are as a church and what our responsibility is. But it's interesting, uh, to me anyway, uh, I notice when I, when I read, I like to look at verbs. Because verbs give you the action of what's going on, what's taking place. Um, and so we have, we have two distinct verb types, what's, what's going on here. First of all, there is the present active indicative uh, verb that is an ongoing action. It's present. It's ongoing. It's continual. So we as, we're the runners, and we have to do our part. And this is the, this is mean that we've got to do it and keep on doing it. We keep on keeping on. What are we supposed to do? Well, he says we're to throw off anything that hinders. Now, I'm old enough. I know uh, not quite as old as Mr. Don, but we've seen, used to have watched uh, Olympics. Uh, they used to put that on ABC, a wide world of sports, and you could find just about any Saturday what was going on. But these, these runners would, you know, they'll, they'll have, uh, I can remember seeing them when they would have the, some of the, the shorts come down here and the T-shirts. Now they're not running with hardly anything on. They've taken most everything off. And I've noticed also some of the Olympic swimmers. Um, I remember uh, Mark Spitz and some of those, they had shaggy hair and big shaggy mustaches and stuff. Now hair is shaved off. And they wear these spandex suits to help them glide through the water or glide through the air, whether it's the, the long jump skiers or the runners or the swimmers. Everything is about shaving off thousands of seconds because the difference between first place and second place or third place is just minute, minute fractions of those seconds. And anything that can be done to gain that fraction of a second to give you that little bit of advantage, it's gold versus bronze. So we're to throw off anything that's going to hinder, any kind of a thing that's going to be extra weight, anything that's bulky, anything that's going to drag us down. You know, the ancient Greek runners used to run naked. There was nothing to drag them down unless they had a shaggy head of hair or something. But they, they, would, they would throw everything off and they would run. And so when we apply this to where we are in running the race, what is it that's going to hinder us? This is not necessarily anything that's sinful. It may be attitudes. It may be things that distract us. Maybe we, we are working with time constraints or, or we have a problem using, utilizing our time. Uh, years ago, I heard, <clears throat> heard someone were talking about tithe and giving the tithe, the 10%. You know, and they also said, well, what about your time? Not only is money to be part of the tithe, what about your, your talents and your time? And, and he said, okay, well, think about it this way. In, in a typical day or a week, how much, how many hours of television do you watch or video games or radio? Back then, it was, t it was TV time. Is it more than 10% of your daily time or your weekly time? Most of us, it probably is more than 10%. What would happen if we dedicated 
our time, our waking time to a tithe of our time, 10% of our day, would we spend two and a half hours in prayer and study and meditation? It might, you know, what, if you do that, it's going to mean you're going to have to get up earlier or stay up later in a typical, in a typical day. What is it that we have to throw off and keep on throwing off and keep on throwing off? That's, that's part of what he says we need to do. And he says, lay aside the, the sin that so easily entangles. That because the writer included a definite article, he said, he didn't say lay aside sin. He said, lay aside the sin. That means it's your sin, my sin. Each of us, and the old folks used to talk about besetting sins. You've ever heard that term? Besetting sin. That means that's something that is a continual struggle that you have. You know, and typically I think of the one who struggles with substance abuse. For some reason, there is this draw, whether it's sugar, caffeine, meth, you know, you, you fill in the blank. There is, a, there is something enticing and, and seductive to each of us. And when we're different, we have, there's, there's something that's different. It, it's, you know, the same thing that attracts that smallmouth bass is not going to attract necessarily the catfish. It might on a strange day. But typically, you use different bait for different fish. Ask JB. He'll, tell you, he'll fill you in all that stuff. What is that sin, the sin, that so easily entangles? My mind goes to something like kudzu. Now, there's a little bit of it here in Arkansas, just right around Main Street. There's a pretty good patch of it down below the college. But having lived in Mississippi and Alabama and Louisiana for several years, I have seen hundreds of acres covered with kudzu. Now, in the summer, it's not too bad. What it looks like is, is someone has taken a green carpet and kind of laid down over the countryside. Trees, power lines, electric poles, hills, houses. It covers everything. And if you stay still long enough, it'd cover you. In, in the right conditions, that stuff grows 8 to 10 inches a day. That's almost fast enough to watch it growing. 8 to 10 inches a day, and the roots will go 50, 60 feet down. So it's, it's difficult to kill it out. And what, what happens when you, when you go to one of those places where the whole land side, landscape is, is carpeted with that, it's, it's green and lush and pretty on the top, but if you part that and go underneath, what you see is deadness because the light does not penetrate beneath that carpet. And so the grass and the tree, anything beneath it is dead. And the vines have just entangled it all around. That's what's going on with us in the sin that besets each of us. One of the things that, that um, hit me between the eyes when I was reading and thinking, sitting as you know, some, as you do that, the Lord kind of hits, a, hits you with a brick, pulling right between the eyes. You go, oh, that's me. I found myself identifying this time with the Jews who were struggling with that tradition. And I, I've grown up traditional Baptist. I've grown up traditional services. And it's, it's something I feel comfortable with. And I want to move back into that. 
you know, often when reading scripture, you put yourself in the side of the good guys who are doing the right things. And you want to sit back and go, yeah, you, you folks, oh, yeah, yeah, you, need to, you need to straighten up and you need to. But what happens is when the finger has to come back and God hits you with a brick and say, oh, that's me. Well, that, that's, that's where I came out on this. And so I, I think if we, as the traditional Baptist probably all would slide in that category because we feel very comfortable with our traditions. And, and, and I have heard, I've said it myself, I'll be glad when things get back to normal. What does that mean? That means we want to be where we have already wallered out our spot in the gravel bed and we feel comfortable here. But God has a unique way of Moving us out of our comfort zones, doesn't he? And he can use a variety of tools and situations to do that. Maybe a pandemic. Maybe an economic recession. Maybe the loss of a job. Or the offer of a new job. Maybe a loss of a loved one. Or the addition of a new one in the family. Things change. And the, the word to us is to throw off anything that hinders us. Lay aside the sin. Keep on laying it aside because it keeps on coming back. It keeps on coming back. It's like kudzu. It, it wants to overtake and overwhelm. I, I did learn that uh, um, cattle and hogs will graze on the kudzu. And as long as you have them on, they'll keep it down. But as soon as they leave, it comes right back. Is kudzu good for anything? Some cultures use it for clothes and medicine and food. Anyway, that's, that's something extra. It didn't cost you anything uh, extra for this morning. So. so we're to throw off everything that gets in our way, lay aside those things that, that cause us to, to sin and entangles us, and we're to persevere and to keep on persevering. And, and that, that points to willpower. It's volitional. It's a matter of the heart. One of the things that um, I've picked up on both the basketball and football hogs this year. I've heard it from a variety of places. These guys are playing with heart in a different way that they've had in the last few years. They've played, you know, when they go up against the big guns, Florida and Alabama, they, man, they just keep right on knocking heads, keep right, may get beat down like a drum, but they keep right on going. Heart, the, the, the will to persevere. And then he says, he says, Consider. Fix your eyes. I left that fix your eyes. So fix, fix your eyes on Jesus. And in, in that process of fixing your eyes on Jesus, like you go back to the race. The, the, the runner that, that's running, if he constantly is turning around and looking who's behind him, he's going to be overcome and overtaken. But those that persevere and win, they've got their eye on the finish line, on the goal. That's where they're going. A hundred years ago, I played baseball in, in high school. And uh, believe it or not, I had a 500 batting average, and I batted cleanup. And I, I usually put it, if not out, then way out there so that whoever's on could come in. So, you know, I'd get out there with it. But one thing I learned early on is when I was facing a left-handed pitcher. I'm a right-handed. I could switch it, but I'd bat right-handed against a left-handed pitcher because they thought they were going to brush me off the plate, and they did the first few times because a left-handed, you know, if you're standing like this, that ball is coming right at your head. 
And about four feet out, it curves right across the plate. So the first few times, oh, I'm backing out like this, strike, what? Strike. Okay, so then I swallowed my pride and I stayed in there. I'm going to get hit or I'm going to hit the ball, but I keep my eye on the ball and it goes. You got to keep your eye on the ball. We've got to keep our eye on Jesus. If we take our eyes off Jesus, we're going to be like Peter that sunk. As long as he was with Jesus, he was walking on the water with him. Remember that? He began to look at the storm and he sunk like a rock. So as we fix our eyes, you know, we, we've got hands and arms that throws things away. We've got our feet that we're going to run with and we've got our eyes fixing on Jesus. And as we do that, he says, consider what he has done. And that word consider literally is the math term that means to calculate. Calculate with Jesus. Calculate what it is that he has done. Consider what he put up with. And then the pastor here moves into the second Verb. So we move from a present tense, active, continual, this is what we've got to keep doing, throwing, laying aside, fixing our eyes, running with perseverance, considering Jesus. And then he describes what Jesus has done. He moves to past tense. It's done and the effect is, the result is still in effect. It's still ongoing. It's a completed action here in the past. But that action is complete and it's done and now it's, it's an ongoing, enduring situation that Jesus has established for us. It says he endured the cross for the joy set before him. Was he looking forward to enjoying his experience on the cross? No way. Where was the joy? Well, that's where you and I come in because he could see us. He knew that if he established that link for us with the Father that we would have connection with Him, we'd have connection with each other, and there would be the ongoing, continual growth in relationship with Him and each other. So He, for the joy of that, He endured the cross. He endured it. Scorned the shame because there was a reputation, a connotation for those who were on the cross. Disregarded. He scorned it. And then he sat down. That means he had completed God's plan. And it's still in action. It's still ongoing. It's still in process. It's still available to us. Why? What's the reason? What's going on? And he tells us. Consider him who endured this opposition from men who were trying to kill him and destroy him so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. These also are racing terms. If you've ever done any running or jogging or uh, any sort of exercise, at some point you get fatigued. You get this buildup of the acid in your muscles that tells you, stop, stop, I'm tired. I need more oxygen. I need a day of rest. You get this fatigue that builds up. The terminology that the writer uses was borrowed from Aristotle, who wrote about three or 400 years prior in describing what was going on in the marathon runners 
as they neared the end of the race and they realized that their energy was just absolutely spent. And when they realized their energy was absolutely spent or they had grown weary, they lost heart. In other words, the, the little engine that thought he could realized he couldn't anymore. He just, he just quit. But what he's giving us an, a, an encouragement here, he says, you don't want to grow weary. We don't want you to do that. You, you've, got to, you've got to hang on. The, the relentless onslaught of these temptations, of this sin, or even mediocrity just continues to come and to come. And often we get fatigued and we, we're bordering in on heart failure. The, the, the aspect of perseverance begins to fizzle. And so he's helping us to see you've got a cloud of witnesses around. When you have a, a stadium or a coliseum full of excited fans, it means a lot to those athletes that are out there to hear the cheers and the encouraging yells and screams, even though they may be fussing at you. Why didn't you catch that ball? And here's all the sound. It's, those are encouraging words, encouraging sounds to the ones who are out there struggling on the field. All of chapter 11, the writer gives as examples of who those Jewish believers knew from their Jewish history, the struggles that they had. They weren't perfect people by any means, but they pressed on and they pressed on and they were looking forward to the day that these believers saw. They were anticipating that and they didn't give up and said, because they didn't give up, neither must you or should you or ought you give up. Now, <clears throat> some have said that Hebrews is a salad sermon because there's so much lettuce in the book. I counted about 16 times. I may have missed some, but at least 16 times the writer says, let us, and then he fills in the blank. Let us not fall short. Let us make every effort to enter God's rest. Let us encourage each other. Let us hold on to our hope. Let us move on to maturity and on and on and on. This is a particular form in the Greek called an exhortation. Exhortation means, hey, come on, keep on, let's go, let's go, let's go. We've got to keep on. It's, I can remember a coach that I had way many years ago. He, he, he was a soft-spoken coach, but he had a, a lanyard on his whistle. And as he would have us finish the day in the basketball court, he said, all right, let's get about 30 laps. Oh, coach, oh, coach, I mean, we're already dead. You can do it. And he'd stand on the sideline over here, and as we'd come by, he'd take that lanyard and kind of, Ting, he had it down pat. He could ting you right there on the hip or on the rear end or wherever, and it would kind of encourage you a little bit. We once in a while need a little ting. We need a little snap. We need a little nudge. And God gives us that in his word. He gives us that in, through his spirit to nudge us. And he gives that to you and to me to nudge each other with, to nudge each other. And so um, let us keep on keeping on. Now, none of this pertains to a particular form. They were moving out of the formalism and the form of Judaism into the journey of faith and trusting God. There was no structure like we know structure. When we talk about church today, often what we talk about is gathering in this for an for a event situation. And I've already mentioned, we've, we talked about, well, can't wait till we get back to normal the way things were. I understand what that means, that, that there's a time of fellowship and there's a time of, 
um, you know, potluck meals and working together on projects. I, I get that, and I appreciate. I love that too, and that's that's something that's very very meaningful. But when we look at the New Testament model of the church, that's not what we see very often. What we see is the people living life together in an engaged and encouraging community where they hold each other accountable. That gets a little messy. You know, when, when we're engaged in some activity and a brother or sister comes, hopefully in a loving way, and say, I don't know that you need to be doing that, talking like that, living like that, going to those places, wearing that sort of stuff. And the first, our first reaction is to put on the self-defense and, and be offended. And What do you mean? And who are you to tell me? But the scripture is pretty plain about who we are as believers and helping each other to be accountable. And what that means is that we need to be about the task of forming Christ in each other rather than focusing on a particular form that we feel comfortable with. And I get that. I've been there. I, I, I do. Had a conversation with someone the other day asking about this, this sort of thing. Well, what's, what do you think is going on? I, you know, as, as much as we could talk about a lot of things in connection with this pandemic, how it's been handled or not handled and all that. Kind of, there's, you know, you can go any number of ways with that, but at least one thing Hopefully, God is moving and speaking and getting our attention as the church. Has it been so long that, that we have, have not really focused on being the church as so much as going to a church event? And we have often, I'm, I'm saying we, because we, we look at this event where we are this morning as our God time, and we were essentially giving God an hour during the week. And then we go on and we come back and we don't see each other, talk to each other for a week. Or if you're out, I'm out maybe two weeks or three weeks. And when we talk about coming back, I understand about coming together and seeing folks that you like to be with. I get that. But being the church is different than coming to a meeting and I think this is an, a prime opportunity for us as God has placed us here to rethink who we are as Calvary Baptists. Or even beyond that, as believers. What does it mean to be a part of the church of God? To be the church of God. We are His hands, we are His feet, we are His heart, we are His mouthpiece. Are we? Do we do that? Are we, are we about uh, this... Getting in, in, in touch with him. You know, if we go to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 3.10, he says the intent of God was that through his church, we would make known the manifest wisdom of God to the powers around. That's my loose paraphrase. But he has you know, given us his intent is to make known. How is it that, that our coming to event, unless someone happens to be watching this, he has come in or go out, that they know that we're a part of this group of people known as Calvary Baptist or friends who come in or visit with us. Well, what difference does that make in their lives to know that we are here? The, the difference that we can make is when we move outside of the walls of this building and we begin to help feed them or we encourage them as we help them to rebuild after their house is burned down or we invite them for a cup of coffee and we just visit. We get to know each other's neighbors and then we begin to understand 
why they're having this struggle that they're having. And, you know, we can then share, well, I've gone through similar struggles and here's how God helped me. And, and we begin to move in that direction. That means that we've got to be a little bit messy. Relationships are messy. You know, if you've got those special relationships in your life, sometimes it gets kind of messy. The husbands and wife never ever fight or have disagreements. No, right? Okay. All right. I'll talk to you later. <laughs> you hear what I'm saying, though? Let's, let's not waste this pandemic as God's people. Let's, let's think about what is it that God is moving on us to do or to be, and how can we honor Him and glorify Him in the face of all that's going on? Because to many people in our community, we are the face of God. And if that's the case, what are they seeing? That's what we need to be asking. What, are they, what do they know about God because of what we have lived before them? Not just going and knocking on the door, inviting them to church. To the one who is a non-believer, church doesn't mean anything to them. They don't need it. What they need is Jesus. They don't need the church till they have Jesus. And then when they have Jesus, they become part of the church and become part of the family. Yeah. So, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The goal is connecting with God and each other. It takes time takes trust, takes truth. We can't do that just in an hour on Sunday. That means it needs to happen in your backyard, on your patio, in your kitchen, in your living room, on your phone, face-to-face, Zoom-to-Zoom, or whatever. If we, you know, if we put limits on God, then it's no wonder that we can't hear Him and we can't comprehend His Word when we read it. We've got to take the limits off. And that's on us. Because he's already done it. It's laid out. We just have to run it. Okay. We're going to sing a song. It's, kind of a, it's, a, it's our closing song. So I'd invite you to stand with us um, as we move into this uh, final time. And uh, then we'll have a prayer as we go. So stand together, please, as we sing our final song here. Okay. Mm-hmm.